Welcome to Shop Talk Live, episode 178. In this episode, Barry, Mike, and I discuss no-name hand planes, draw boring, scrub planes, and the best wood choice for a dining room table that's likely to travel the world. But first, we're going to try something a little bit different. Before we start the show, I want to bring everyone up to speed on what we're doing here at Fine Woodworking. A couple of weeks ago, we posted two videos of Danielle Rose Bird carving a Greenwood shrink pot to go along with her article in issue 273. Concept of a shrink pot is hard to explain. It's equal parts woodworking, art, and magic. There's a free yet mesmerizing version of the video that is just Danielle carving and one for members where she narrates the process throughout. I'll put a link to both videos in the show notes. Also, I wanted to remind everyone that Fine Woodworking Unlimited members have access to everything on the website. That's the archive going back to issue number one. Everything's in there, even the old ads, which are fun to look at, and Taunton's Complete Illustrated Guide to Woodworking book series. If you've been thinking about an unlimited membership, but you're on the fence about it, there's a free two-week trial available, so you could try it before you buy it. All right, let's get the show started. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer, send them into shoptalk at taunton.com. Any links or articles we mention will be on this episode's show notes page, which can be found at shoptalklive.com. On with the show. This episode is airing four days before Christmas. Oh, great. So I'm willing to bet there are some woodworkers out there who are throwing shellac on a project right now oh yeah i hope it's shellac to get it done <laughs> why did i pick an oil finish <laughs> how many uh have, have you guys ever gone the i know you're big on building presents yeah but it never works out so if you're building something right now godspeed I think, yeah you're screwed I think <laughs> the first christmas you were here you knocked out like five or six things that was brutal and i Flew to Florida, yes. so I had to get done. I didn't have like the December twenty fifth deadline. It was December nineteenth or something. Oh, ouch! Yeah, that's sooner than the twenty fifth. <laughs> so that was rough. But the first time I built something for as a gift, uh huh, it was a little dice box um, for some friends who were into tabletop gaming. Oh, and are it, they like Farkle dice? No, they were the twenty the decahedrons. I think twenty sided. Oh, for like Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I'm like oil finish on oak, that's gorgeous. Except I hadn't accounted for the oak, like of the oil seeping out oh, of the port. The uh-huh. old bleeding of the oak. So after I wrapped it, I'm like, Oh, I'm so excited <laughs> to give this and it was already late and you saw these oil spots on the outside of the wrapping paper. <laughs> Like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> like a McDonald's bag of fries. Yes. <laughs> I think like a five guys bag of fries. Yes. <laughs> uh, what about you? Have you ever taken on the, the challenge of, I mean, there was yes. one year Katie and I made every single present we gave. Oh. That's cool. It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. Um, I did like a little two step, little step stools. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was for, I don't know, it must have been maybe a half a dozen of those. Wow. That was kind of cool. Um, I was into ceramics for a while in college, and I had like a little electric kiln, so I would do little ornament-ish things, but being made out of ceramics, they're like really heavy, <laughs> so it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think for, for a long time, I um, kind of tried to do make the, the whole gaggle of holiday gifts that's a cool thing and yeah there's probably a lot of more cutting boards made in the month of december than all of these <laughs> yes. combined. well that's the key is that you gear up to make cutting boards to sell at holiday craft fairs and you just make sure you don't sell them all so by the time christmas comes or, around or you miss the deadline yes and then, and then you've got like you know, a couple dozen cutting boards laying around and it's like bam christmas present bam 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 so I had to stop giving people spoons when um, my dad opened a spoon and he was like, oh, look, a spoon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? Because um, I'm still waiting on my spoon. Everybody at work is still waiting on spoons (laughs) because I stopped making them for a while. But the shave horse is in the living room. Spoon production has kicked back up for the winter season. I just got a nice new shipment of dark roast oolong tea. And it's in my little tea canister at work, and I have to like stick my fat fingers into the little tea canister. Oh, like an to, animal to put the little tea into my 
little teapot. And every time I think of that, I think I'm going to go down to the kitchen and get a plastic spoon just to shame Ben. I asked him for a rice paddle because I just have that janky oh, white one yeah. that comes with the steamer. It's like, yeah. Ben, and I like failure pops into my head every time. <laughs> I, f- I forgot about that. <laughs> it's better or worse. I thought you wanted a scoop. No, then you bought a scoop from uh, Rusted Pulchitude, right? Danielle Roseberg. Oh, you bought a scoop yeah. from oh. Wow. La Tira. Fancy. The problem that I'm having with your, and that I need to confer with you about, about the, the teaspoon, is how much of a crank you want on it. Because, like, the other night I made a spoon. I was like, this, maybe, maybe this is Mike's. Mm, maybe this like, is the one. But, like, I don't want you to have to, God forbid, Mike has to bend his wrist. <laughs> 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 but, like, it was like, no, there's not enough of a crank on it for that one specific task of putting tea. Just keep making the spoons and the right spoon will reveal itself to you. You'll say, this is it. And you'll hand it to me, and I'll say, this is it. I'm going to show up with a ladle one day, and be like, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, should we answer some questions? Yeah, sure. First question is from Tony. We hear so much talk about Lee Nielsen Veritas and Stanley hand planes, but I have a Miller's Fall number 8 that I picked up from an antique store that works really well. I don't think I've ever heard the name Miller's Falls mentioned on the podcast, so I'm wondering if, they're, if, if they are any good. Well, it works really well. Um, they seem to have been in contention with Stanley, and they are American-made from New England, no less, since 1868. New England pride. So I'm all on board with the Miller's Fault. When I hear, when someone says, get an old Stanley, I hear, get an old plane. It's not necessarily only Stanley. This is true. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of plane manufacturers going on at that time because people were actually making a living with their hand planes. Right. Yeah. So pre-World War II, yeah. you can expect better quality than... I think so. Yeah. Your your stable of planes is... Eclectic. It's pretty eclectic. That's yeah. a good, I was going to say a mutt. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a Craftsman, and I got it for 15 bucks or 25 bucks, so no money, really. Of, of that same era. Yes. Okay. How far 15 bucks? <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably made by Miller's Falls. So there's this cool website um, hosted by Don Wilwall called mm. Time Tested Tools. And he goes through and he has these different um, uh, like stamps put on the plane. Like, oh, if it is this, it was made by Sargent. If it was this, it was made by Miller's Falls. Oh, cool. And other. So mine is kind of like a Miller's Falls stamp, but regardless... It's, it's a really nice plane. Yeah. It has never acted up on me. There's some backlash in the um, wheel adjustment and the lateral adjustment isn't incredibly tight. But Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, 15, 25 bucks and it shaves really nicely. Yeah. So That wasn't the plane you were using when you posted that picture of that, as you called, <laughs> chunk out. <laughs> no, that, what was I using? I was using, my, <laughs> using an intermediate scrub plane, kind of a... Heavy, heavily cambered jack plane. Yeah, wait, wait. I almost replied to you. I don't know why you got tear out. The grain is so straight, and your shavings are so thin. Wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> you saw that post? Yes, I did. Did you like it? I'm oh. sure I did. No, you didn't. You ended up yes, like one of my posts in like three posts. <laughs> I liked them. I loved that post. Actually, yes. That's like the fine woodworking office equivalent of spitting in his face. Right. <laughs> <laughs> No, okay. So that board is way over long, and there was a knot there. I'm like, I'm just gonna go through it, you know. <laughs> um, so, um, getting back to the question at hand, so you're not afraid of any manufacturers? No, especially if it's pre. But how do you II. know? How do you know? Are you that guy who like sits there on the phone looking up? No, so serial for, numbers and stuff at the flea market. No, for okay. that. For that plane, I mean, you can look at tote size. That plane I lucked out. To be totally honest, I lucked out. I did bring a ruler to the flea market, and sorry, antique store where I bought it hmm. to oh, check. They must have loved that. Yeah. Uh, they mocked doing? me later. I became a regular. Like, what were you doing with that ruler? <laughs> <laughs> um, to check, like, to see if the blade was bellied on the back. And yeah. I did scope out the cap iron, but I lucked out. Um what to look for? I know the tote, like squattier front knobs, are a sign of pre World War II. But I'm not really up on my scoping out a plane 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, whether it's a Stanley or any other brand, you're looking for pieces that aren't missing. Okay. Um, a plane that isn't obviously been cannibalized and you see parts from a bunch of other planes. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you want to make sure there's no uh, cracks in the casting. And for an off-brand plane that may be difficult to get an aftermarket iron for it, take a look at the iron. It doesn't matter if it's all like ground and rounded over. Um, just look at the back of the iron and make sure it's not really pitted with rust because if there's any pits, you can't get it sharp. But yeah. um, I think Hawk sells blades, I think, for different manufacturers of old hand planes. I'm not sure. He might have – Jeff is saying he does. But, but yeah, I mean, Miller's go. Falls, you mentioned Craftsman, Sergeant. I think you mentioned that as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of – I think you can just sort of kind of tell by looking at it whether it's an old plane or if it's a – you know, if it's got plastic handles. Nah. Have you seen the Miller's Falls, the Buck Rogers uh -huh. ones? I've seen it. The Roy Underhill. I think it's, yeah, yeah, the outro of the Roy Underhill. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he really digs it. So that's my one acceptance to plastic well, yes, handles. That's but yeah, yeah. I don't know if those plastic or bakelite. I'm not sure. Ooh, uh, bakelite. Yeah, you're yeah, right. It's bakelite. Cool. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that. Even if it doesn't work well, and I think Roy sort of confessed that it may not take the finest shaving of any hand plane he has. But I can understand how that would be your yeah. favorite hand plane. Absolutely. I I always like if I'm at a flea market, I'm always hesitant to like pull out a straight edge. And start checking it because then they're going to be like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about or I'm going to charge him more for it because he wants a good hand. You know, it's like you always – there's a fine line to, to ride between looking like you know too much and looking like, oh, I'm just buying a hand plane because right. I might paint it. I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but there, there was one time that I was, um, I was at the flea market and I was buying – because this is what I do. I buy wooden hand screws nonstop. And I didn't realize I was wearing I was wearing a Lost Art Press shirt with uh, it's my old school Lost Art Press shirt with the three hand planes on it, and I I pick up a, a wooden hand screw and the guy goes like twenty five bucks I was like no I was like I'll give you ten and he he goes <clears throat> you know what that is and points to my shirt and I was like all right I really have to own this right now I go yeah I do. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not blink when you stared him in the yep. eyes? Dude? I stared him right in the eyes and go, yeah, I do. And he goes, all right, 10. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, <laughs> okay, all right. I do find like at flea markets, you know, this whole notion of, oh, maybe somebody will have something that they don't know, you know, the value of it. Yeah. What I find is that if people are selling other stuff and they happen to have a hand plane there and they don't know the true value of it, it's always overpriced. They always think it's worth way more than it actually is. And I find that the tool dealers who have tons of stuff, that's actually where you get the best tools and the best deals from as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I got burned out on rust hunting for that very reason. Because if there is something nice, it's just nasty and in the bottom of a bucket and someone wants 100 bucks. Yeah. It's, yeah, not yeah. worth it. All right. Uh, question number two uh, from Matt. I have been wanting to do a project using drawbore mortise and tenon joints. Yeah. What? I like that. That was good enthusiasm. <laughs> right out the gate. <laughs> is it a bad idea to attempt this joint in softer woods like cherry or walnut rather than oak? I would say no. Yeah, I would say no. Yeah. I drawboard my kitchen table, and that's pine and some poplar, but pine, and that was you, you know, have fine. a mutt of a kitchen table too. Yeah, it's painted. Yeah, the pine base is painted. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything that you do differently in, in softer woods? Uh, if anything, I think there's more wiggle room because um, I work in you know obviously I work in white oak quite a bit, and in fact I was just making a little shop stool and with the drawboard. Um, joinery and basically you're offsetting the holes in the mortise and the tenon so as you drive them together it actually pulls everything tight which is really really cool it's a self-clamping joint um, where you run into trouble is if your offsets are too much mm -hmm. um, things can break the pin can sort of snap off um, <clears throat> so I would say in so and I, softer woods, you know, relatively speaking, cherry and walnut, you can probably – I think there's more leeway in terms of the amount of the variation in your offsets and you can still get by because there's a little bit more compressive nature of those woods. 
Whereas I think the heart of the wood, just like when you're fitting joinery, if it's really, really hard wood and there's no compression at all, you've got to be like dead on. So if anything, um, I don't think it's an issue. I'm going to say no. No, I had nothing. My note was a larger offset, but it's probably not even a concern at furniture scale. It's like yeah. a skinny sixty-fourth. You know, it's like, right. So. Just see that little skinny crescent when you put them together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that's good. Um, see like a half moon? No, that's <laughs> that's bad. Do you ever use, like, say you're doing, not even for aesthetic reasons? Do you ever use oak pins on a walnut piece, or are you always using the species? That's no, for the pen. I think that's a really good idea in that um, even if it's – I think you need to be using a, a harder wood for pen. So I always typically use kind of a variation on ribbon oak, meaning I, I use kiln-dried stock. I'll find stuff with pretty straight grain. I'll take a short board maybe eight inches long um, and just hit the end grain with my axe and split it. So that's going straight with the grain, and then I'll just hand plane along that, and then just bandsaw all my little pins off of that axis. So mm-hmm. basically, you want straight grain is really really important. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you want like a contrasting wood, like if you don't want to use oak on everything, I've used um, like rosewood pins. On he has an axe. We haven't f- said anything about that yet, but he has an axe. <laughs> on a flame birch little table I made, um, I think I started off with – I don't know what I started off with, but I ended up using with the contrasting ones. It should be pretty tough, and it should be along the grain lines. I pulled up Lada's draw boring article that I did, which is really awesome. Yeah. Um, and that was his only – that was the only tip when, regarding species was if I'm using a really soft wood like pine, I'm going to grab a maple peg. And I mm. think there was just so there wasn't so much color contrast, but he said he's definitely okay. going harder. So, um, Chris Gochner in the Enfield cupboard used – it was a cherry cupboard and used cherry draw bar pins. But when he would do the dry fitting and everything and he would draw bore it with cherry, he would, he would take those pins out and throw them away. Oh, yeah. oh sure. Yeah. It was like single use. Yeah. You know. Um, it's not even worth trying to reuse them. Yeah. Just make new pins. The other cool thing about that style of joinery is, as I mentioned, I was making my shop stool and there was, I was sort of kind of refining the design as I was building. And what's really cool is with the drawboard joinery, you can just, just tack them in place, just like, just get them started to pull the joint tight and you can do all your dry fitting. Like I had to dry fit the base in order to measure for a stretcher between the lower rails and that kind of stuff. You know, you just tack it together and it holds really, really tight, but then you just pop them back out and you can pull it back apart. So, so you don't even bother with draw bore pins. Those like big taper metal thingies. The face you're making is saying no. Oh, that tool that allows you to align. It looks like what you used to like sharpen a kitchen knife, like one of those. Yeah. I know. That was probably like, that was a a very important learning experience for me. I was demonstrating a Lee Nielsen show in Mystic Seaport, which was really cool, um, which is neither here nor there. But someone came up and he was holding this Lee Nielsen little pointy stick Mm -hmm. for aligning draw bore holes. He says, oh, do I need this? I said, No. And he was like so crushed <laughs> and so depressed. It's like, ah, oh, he just wanted someone to say, yeah, you yeah, need that. It's a cool looking tool. So, so I, I learned that lesson. So, of course, you need one of those. <laughs> um, when you made your stool, you, there's bridle joints that you draw boring. Yeah. Are you draw boring? Are you offsetting those, those holes? So so basically, that bridle joint, you want it to pull tight in two directions. Yeah. Are you offsetting those holes in both directions? Um, like yeah. Diagonally? If you okay. reference my little sewing table article with the bridle joint at the top, um, I did speak specifically about offsetting at an angle. So Where I'm, we, huh? I'm a little steamed at this <laughs> point. In time. I think he was trying to lead you on. He yes. was the... to. <laughs> Uh, to give yes. the listener more information. Here's, here's the thing, though. It's every time I do it, I have to figure it out because I know, okay, just going straight in, into 
like a regular tenon. I know if I, you know, mark a little center point, dry fit the joint, mark the center point, pull it apart, I make a new center point just a hair in toward the shoulder. And that's good. So I'm thinking, okay, so I'm pulling this bridle joint at a diagonal. So I'm going to go a hair into the shoulder and then a hair down. And it's like, no, that pulls it to the shoulder, but then up away from the bottom of the bridle joint. Because I did it once, and you pound it through, and it kind of there was a little gap. Oh, yeah, I just did that in my head. Yeah, and I said, oh, that was weird, but maybe I just got it wrong. So then I did the second one, and boop, it came up too. It's like, what is going on? <laughs> so it, it's a little counterintuitive, but going into the shoulder of the tenon, you go toward the shoulder, but the bridle, you go up away from the bridle. So I have to like refigure out every time, and the last time I tried it, I guessed wrong. So now I don't care, and I just go straight into the joint. <laughs> Do you ever like like? Did you have to remake that piece? Maybe. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. So I pulled it back out. I drilled out that whole oversize. I plugged it, and then I fit it back in and remarked it. So, yeah, that was a bummer. How is it pounding out a drum? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I was drinking. You pounded out the peg? Yeah. Drill- okay. What is that like? Uh, usually it's not too bad. Okay. Yeah. That's something that I just am terrified. Because ter- I typically terrified. don't glue the pins and I'll glue like the mortise and mm-hmm. tenon of a joint, but I usually, I don't put glue on the pin or in the little hole of the pin because uh-huh. it just holds itself. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well... You've already admitted to one smooth move. Do you want to give us this week's smooth move? Uh, gosh, that was probably it. Um, here's kind of a smooth move, and it's something I'm in the middle of right now, is I tend to build a lot of furniture, which... Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no place to put it anymore. And I have so much I have no place to put it. Um, I, actually, I, actually, I actually don't do a lot of commission work. Um, most of the work I do, it's either for articles or for teaching, and it all sort of kind of kind of falls into one big kind of melding pot of furniture-ish making that all looks like the stuff that I make. So um, I got a a recent commission, though, and it's someone, you know, they needed a little table. And, you know, I said, well, what style? What was? It's like, oh, I really like your stuff. Just, you know, kind of do your thing. It's like, that's like the ultimate commission, Mm -hmm. right? That's something I've been working for my entire woodworking life is, (laughs) is, I love what you do. Just make me something. It's like, but, and I was like, I froze. I was like, oh, no. And I had to think. It's like, oh, it's a commission. Someone's paying for it. I have to make a real piece of furniture now. What would that be? Oh, Hank Gilpin. What would he do? Because he makes real furniture. <laughs> and Tim Coleman. What would Tim do? Because, like, that's real furniture. <laughs> and I was sort of picturing this table in my mind. And, and, like, every time I sort of looked at the upper part of the table where the aprons meet, the legs meets the top, which is really defines the whole piece, it was this – fuzzy black cloud in my brain. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see what was there. And every time I thought of a solution that was t- more typical of what I've done in the past, I said, no, 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 you can't do that because that's what you do. And that's what you've done. And, you know, of course it took, you know, about three days to say, Mike, you've been really stupid. Just, it's like everything you make is so based on everything you've made. Why, you know, why move away from that? Because you can't do anything else. So just hang on. So I kind of went back, kind of started, you know, with the last piece that I made, which was a, a tea chest on a stand. And I looked at the stand. And even that was like a couple steps removed from what I normally do. But, you know, because that was based on <clears throat> a little tea table, which was based on this Krenov style stand, which was based on the rolling rack from my tool case. You know, so this evolution of form. So I looked at that and and sort of came up with an idea. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. It's kind of based on that, but then it's moving forward and adding some curves and lightening up some elements to give it more of a refined look and changing the wood. And so, you know, the smooth move was just completely abandoning any sense of just do what you – just build what you want to build. And don't get too far in your head and thinking you need to make something real. So I think that's it. There was a, there was a moment in there that was like – I'll never say that because <laughs> such and such was based on the rolling rack of my tool case. And like, but that's, you know, even though it's shop furniture, yes. you used it as an opportunity to try something new, blah, 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 you know, and it led to another piece. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, see, 
if you just screw together plywood with drywall screws, it doesn't work that <laughs> I way. I was looking at the base of his tool rack or his the tool chest one time. I'm like, oh, use two by fours. I'm like, oh, but he designed them. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I, I think that is true is that, you know, not every piece you're going to make is going to be perfect. But the more you invest, the more you try on any given piece. Like you said, if you make something out of screws and plywood, the less you might learn is, well, the next piece I'm going to make is not going to be screws and plywood. You know, so that's that lesson. But you, whatever effort you invest, I think the more you can gain from that piece that you make. Mm-hmm. So it may something really mindlessly. You may not be moving forward. But just try even on a small thing, and it's going to maybe teach you a new skill, give you a new perspective, give you a new design detail or construction detail or a joint you've never tried before. And then that just becomes part of your arsenal that you can put towards the next things that you make. Cool. Me? Yeah. So talking about making a project and not necessarily moving forward, <laughs> this whole project is a smooth move. So context, we we just were moving shops, the magazines between shops. So that like push towards the end was like, you got to build some stuff, use up the good wood, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that was, yeah. And so, so I was just knocking out these little boxes. One was a gift and the other one was just me. Like I had a nice piece of wood. I'm going to build a box that whatever dimensions I can get out of this thing. Right. It's all it's mitered, and the first thing I screwed up was that you do like that instant rabbited lid where like you cut a groove on the inside, yeah. mm-hmm. and then when you saw the opposing halfway up kerf on the outside, the lid pops off, you get a nice little rabbit. Yeah. For the, I screwed that up somehow. I'm still not totally sure. So I'm sawing off that rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'll just put in a you know, mitered liner. Yeah. And there's only plywood hanging around. So, oh, cool. I'll paint it like it'll be a nice little accent piece. Milk paint. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was milk paint, green milk paint. And so I cut the plywood, miter it. It's a good, nice fit, except I cut the plywood too narrow. It wasn't wide enough for it to register on the lid. Ugh, all right, fine. I'll cut this mitered liner again. I keep the first plywood liner on hand to help me set up the stops because it, you know, the fit. length is good. Right. The length, yeah, length is good. Um, and so I make the new liner. It's nice and wide, it grabs onto the lid. Cool. So, I go home. I come back the next day. Oh, no, and, I, and then I sand the miter liner. Go home. Come back the next day. Like, this my, this liner is a lot rougher feeling than I remember when I sanded up to 220 yesterday. So, I sand the liner. I'm like, this is weird. I know I did this. Maybe it was just in a daze. Put glue on, clamp it up. I'm like, all right, sweet. Oh, no, painted glued, clamped it up. I'm like, all right, sweet. Go to put the lid on that, like, moment of success. Yeah. I glued in the short, the narrow liner. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't grabbing because of that rabbit that didn't work from the first thing I smooth moved. So then yes. I had to trim down the lid. And it's fine now. It holds business cards and such, but it's but just. But you have to trim the top of the business cards off a sixteenth of an inch. <laughs> I had it in my cube pen. It's like, oh, nice box. I'm like, don't talk to me about my box. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> yeah, and you you had the opportunity, you had the moment of like, I thought I did this already. Yeah, and that was where you should have caught yourself. But nope. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. even tell you what I did with the narrow liner. I thought I just put them in a corner. But no, you get rid of the things that don't work. <laughs> like, you, like you put a big red X. DNU. Yeah, do not use. Well, mine is embarrassing and somewhat dangerous. Mm. And um, this. Like like Barry said, like in the last few weeks before we we knew that we were going to lose the shop, it was like all hands on deck. You got to build stuff because it's going to be a little while mm-hmm. before we have another one. And um, I I we should have made a list of all of the things we said we were going to build in that time <laughs> period because it was like four or five workbenches and like side days. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. it was like oh yeah, we need to knock out some workbenches right now. <laughs> Didn't happen, but um. So one of the problems with the communal shop is that you don't want to invest a whole lot of time into jigs and sleds and fixtures. Right. Because they're, someone's, someone else is going to use them, ruin them, whatever. Right. So I needed to do splines uh, on, on some boxes. And I thought, well, you know, what if I just took a two-by-four, took it to the shop, so I'll cut it at a 45, glued it back onto itself, Okay. And I had a tall 45-degree ramp, if you will, okay. yeah. that I can then 
use to hold the box as I you rip it, rip a spline through it. Okay. In theory, it worked until there was nothing to hold the box from tipping forward. Okay. And as I was lining a box up to get ready for a cut, and I'm not like in my, I'm I'm making a cut mindset, right? Which is you know amped up focus and everything. As I'm just like moving things around, and the blade is on at this point, and the blade is spinning because I'm in between cuts. Oh, okay. That box, and it was my prototype, thankfully, oh. tipped into the blade. Ooh. Bam. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it was. I mean, uh, there's just a kerf into the side of my prototype box. You know, I was doing a. I was doing one to make sure everything worked and, mm-hmm. you know, to, to learn the process on. But it really was one of those. Like, it was totally, like, nothing kicked back, nothing. It just went into the blade and sat there, and it was like, you are an idiot. You are absolutely stupid. Turn off the saw, go outside, walk around and think <laughs> about how dumb you are. <laughs> I want you to think about this. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it was, wow. that was, that was not... This by anywhere near the smartest thing I've ever done, and but it's that oh I don't want to spend too much time yeah, on yeah. this mentality that leads you into a stupid thing that could have really done more damage than I I got lucky on that one. Good, only tipping the box into the blade. All right, well that's the best kind of lesson. Yeah, yeah. one that scares a bejesus out of you, <laughs> but doesn't cause any lasting damage. Yeah, I want to just gluing a kerf into the you know gluing a, a piece of wood into that kerf and uh, you know my son will store matchbox cars in it or something like that and it'll taunt me for years to come sure but all right we are going to take a quick break and when we come back barry's going to tell us about his fine scrub plane and heavy scrub plane because you have an intermediate scrub plane yeah i don't understand your tone Recently, I brought my wife Katie into the studio to ask her advice on giving gifts to woodworkers. What should a loved one think about when buying a holiday gift for a woodworker? Will they use it? Do they have it? It really helps to reach out to other woodworkers on Instagram and ask them for advice. (laughs) Is that what you do? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But what would you get someone who, uh, who might have... A lot of tools. Oh, definitely a fine woodworking membership. Wow, you're really good at this. Yeah, lots of information. (laughs) I didn't even tell you to say that. No. (laughs) Well done. Especially the online membership. Really good videos. Well, you know what is awesome now? We have an unlimited membership, which is the subscription and the online membership and access to the archive and complete illustrated guide to woodworking. That's amazing. Yeah. And it also doesn't take up a lot of space if you're looking to declutter your house. So if you're in a bind, there's still time to give the gift of the Fine Woodworking Unlimited membership to your favorite woodworker. Head on over to finewoodworking.com slash gift unlimited. The gift of love. All right, question three. Barry has his prop out. Can someone explain the difference between a scrub plane and a smooth plane? They seem similar in size and construction. And they are. I looked. Uh, Lee Nielsen number four is ten and a quarter inches long, and a Lee Nielsen scrub plane is nine and a half inches long. It's narrower. Mm-hmm. Okay. Big, yeah. big open throat. Yeah, huge. So, I mean, this throat I can fit one of my fingers into. My pinky finger. So I have a scrub plane for those listening at home. And is, this is this isn't your normal everyday scrub plane. This is probably this is one of the Avengers. This, <laughs> this was owned. I mean, it's a German style scrub plane, right? Yeah. So it's a German style, or I think continental type plane, but it's wooden body with a horn at the front. At the front, I've never seen that at the front. It's nice. So what I like about this is. Because you're really going, so a scrub plane has a heavily cambered iron and a wide open throat, mm-hmm. and that's so you can just eat up boards to thickness them by hand or to apply texture. But traditionally, thickness them by hand going across the grain. Okay. And so this horn at the front of mine, I really like because you can just grab it and go, and it's got it fits the back of my hand nicely. So, yeah. So I should glue that in. Yeah. <laughs> 
the horn the, is also loose, but um, and the iron's fairly narrow. So yeah, so my iron is I just measured it. It's just shy of an inch and a half okay. wide. Ditto the Lee Nielsen. I think it's one point four five. Whereas a regular number four smoother is about two inches. Yeah, yeah. Um, iron's pretty thick. So and the and I didn't measure mine. Um, the Lee Nielsen one is like one point eight five inches thick. I think I wrote it down. Okay. Um, as opposed to their normal number five, or number four, sorry, which is, what is it? Sorry, their iron's three sixteenths of an inch thick on the scrub plane. Yeah. Which is .06 thicker than their number four. And they have pretty beefy irons. Yeah. Does the scrub plane not have a chip breaker? Theirs doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, Mine also doesn't. And you can... Get, so if you just take like an old, like a rusty number four that you get for 10 bucks at a flea market, yeah. file open the mouth. So when you buy the Craftsman and it turns out to be the junk Craftsman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you turn it into a scrub plane. Yeah. yeah. Just whatever cheap plane you have lying around, just file open the mouth if it's metal or wood. Put a heavily cambered iron on. And for the chip breaker, you want it way out of the way. Okay. So bring it back to the bottom of the curve. Okay. So... You, how do you recommend honing uh, a really plain iron? Yeah. Um, buy an 8-inch joiner instead. <laughs> uh, 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 well, um, by hand. A smoothing plane iron? Like, how, how do you address that camber? Well, so the- I mean, a smoothing plane iron, the camber you're talking is like in the thousands of an inch radius. So you can't see it. You can't physically make it. The way you do it is just pressure right and left on the, each corner of the blade as you're sharpening, as you're honing it. And you where, do it on your 4,000 grit, right? Yeah, 4,000, yeah. which would be the intermediate stone that I use. Um, but for camber, cambered iron, like a curved iron, yeah. um, I have a couple planes, um, Cornout style planes that I made, and I got the irons from Ron Hawk, where you can buy cambered irons of different radiuses. And those I just sharpen by hand because they're really, really thick irons. So there's a nice hollow grind that makes it a little bit easier to kind of register on the stone as you're working that whole uh, curve. So um, I think that the toughest thing about a cambered iron is getting that initial grind on there in a really controlled and accurate fashion. Because if you have a nice heavy grind and it's even, it's pretty easy to hone that by hand. I was surprised. I was worried about honing this by hand. And that hollow grind and even curvature across it. Because yeah. I made this. This was an old smoothing plane. How did you grind that? Because your grind is really nice. Yeah. Um, I did. I marked it. I think it's about a two, two and a half inch radius. Okay. So I just put a paper template on, did a marker line. Yeah. And I don't think I flattened it square. Did you grind? I was going to ask if you ground it at 90 degrees to your curve and then... Use that to create your bevel? I don't think I did. Hmm. I think I just went slowly, ate away at it, which I wouldn't do again because that took a while. Yeah. Um, And since then, I've ground irons flat and then redone the profile, and I like that more. It seems to go faster, more controlled. That was just slow and steady. So, I mean, for honing on this, you're almost doing it more like you would an axe than a plain iron because you can't. Put this directly on the stone. Oh, yeah. I turn my stone sideways. Like this. So this is your stone. So you're here, and you're just kind of working just like that. Oh, okay. All right. So it's a twisting motion with with your wrist. Okay. I've been doing doing full sweeps. Oh, the full sweep. That's that's very elegant. I have have an 11-inch long stone, though. (laughs) (laughs) You're skating across something. Um, But... Yeah, this is ru- the smoothing plane is for nice, smooth, glassy, finished cuts. Yes, yeah. this is going to be ugly, you know. And it's it's the intent isn't a finished surface; it's to really hog off stock in yeah. a really aggressive manner. Yeah. So, and almost never will I go with the grain with this okay. because any you know wiggle, this thing wants to dive right in and take a big old chunk out. Okay. So, like you showed us on Instagram, with that was at the intermediate, intermediate scrub. Yeah. Do you really have more than one scrub plane? I would consider it a hardy jack. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> Some people do um, 
camber the iron on their jack planes pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. So you're right. That is halfway in between. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the last scrub plane question we'll get for years to come. You, Wait, one more thing. Oh, sorry. Because no. you mentioned the camber on the smoothing plane is in the thousands of an inch. You can't see it. Right. This on my scrub plane over the quarter an inch wide blade, it's a sixteenth of an inch difference. Like that's the drop from center to corner on each side. Okay. So and the concept's the same in that you want to take an almost full width shaving, just stopping at the edges so you're not digging the corners of the blade in. And for a scrub plane, you're just taking it's designed to take really, really heavy shavings. Mm-hmm. And a smooth plane is designed to take really thin shavings. Yeah. yeah. But they are similar in size. Yeah, and this, I mean, you don't want it long. You don't want to have more mass pushing around. It doesn't do you much good because you're not, like, trying to get a flat surface. You're just getting toward. So it's sort of moderately controlled gouging. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You would, but you wouldn't, if you were going to go to flea market and just buy an old plane, you would use a number four, not a number five for I'd say three or four. Yeah. Three or four? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because you don't want it also, like, a smoothing plane. You want to be able to follow any minor deviations in the surface as yeah. opposed to like a jointer plane. Ditto here. I don't want to get caught up, have the plane resting on two flats like I want it to go. And you're also um, going cross grain. So yeah, across I, the width of a board, which is. Yeah. And I want to be able to take like control cuts like, oh, here's a high spot. I'm just going to go there. Mm-hmm. And I right. don't have to worry about. Yeah. I don't, I never flatten stock by hand, but I think in terms of the sequence of hand planes, isn't it scrub to number five? To number seven to get it really, really flat, and then back to your smoothing plane number four, yeah. where you're no longer worried about flattening. All you're doing is just smoothing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or if you're Mike, jointer, planer, number four. <laughs> it is a nicer process. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question number four. It's a long one. Uh, from Philip. I am looking to build a dining room table for a friend of mine, and I am wondering what type of wood would be yes, would be best to use. The friend that I am making this for is a military man, and so gets stationed at different bases around the country every few years. My main concern is the table warping or splitting due to the drastic location and environmental changes that he will come across. Obviously, a dining room table must be sturdy and not too prone to scratches, dings, etc., White oak is very wear-resistant, but has medium-high shrinkage value. Cherry is pretty stable once dried, but is softer and may get more dings. Walnut seems to be the middle road, being harder and less susceptible to scratches than cherry, but less likely to shrink warp than white oak. What type of wood would you suggest going to be is, is going to be resistant to scratches and dings, yet won't warp or split due to drastic climate changes? I don't think there's a relative difference between any of those woods. Yeah. You're all good. Um, I wouldn't – I mean, none of them I would worry too much in regard to – I mean, dings and scratches, it's all kind of the same to a certain extent in terms of expansion, contraction, stability. Uh, you're going to be good. You know, if the if the base of your table is keeping everything nice and flat – you have nice glue joints between the boards. It's just not going to be an issue. I don't think I would worry about it. Yeah, and I mean, in this set of three board woods, cherry is technically the softest, but that's still, no, still a, a yeah. pretty durable wood. I mean, my cherry dining room table with uh, I believe my son was three at the time, up to five. If if that's not getting scratched and dinged up. Nothing yeah, is. I think all three woods are very appropriate and yeah. traditionally used in that. So it really comes down to, but each of those woods has a drastically unique character to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you can have one design. Okay, here's my table. What wood do I make it out of? Because that wood is really going to affect probably what you design and what it looks like. Yeah. So I, w- I would work with what you want the table to look like with the wood in mind so that the wood matches the design of the piece. Yeah, that was my note. It was design arrow to wood choice because I didn't see a huge difference, especially if you're, and if you're really concerned, get cortisone stock or, you know, then get into stock selection or put. But that also plays into design too because if you've got cortisone yeah. oak, 
the design yeah, is going to change from flats on oak or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, if you use like big, thick, live edge slab walnut or something, those boards by their nature, they tend to move a lot. And because they tend to be relatively thick, the energy in that board when it wants to move it's just gonna move mm-hmm. but at the same time there's sort of a rustic quality to a live edge board tabletop to wear yeah yeah so i mean to me i think wood selection is less of a concern than construction method because so this table is going to be moving cross country multiple times throughout yeah. its life i don't think i would do a trestle table without a breadboard end Hmm. Um, I think I would do a table with aprons so that those aprons are, are, are attached to that tabletop during the moving process. I think about my dining room table, trestle table. If, if I'm moving it, I'm taking the, the flat top off of the the stretchers and there's nothing now holding it in place. If he's moving cross country, that could be a month. Six weeks. Yeah. A lot of time for that to all of a sudden hit a climate change and potato chip. I think for a base like a trestle base where it isn't doing a lot to keep things flat, I don't think breadboard ends do anything other than hide the end grain. Okay. I I think uh, cleats on the underside of the table that are mounted sort of, you know, in the opposite direction vertically, um, that does a lot to sort of keep things fairly flat. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if you think of... The typical heating and cooling seasons in Connecticut, where you go from, you know, in a house with really bad AC or no AC, you're talking 80% humidity, 90% humidity in the summer. With a wood stove and not a lot of insulation, you're talking like 0% humidity. <laughs> so, I mean, even in a, in a typical heating and, and cooling climate, you know, where you have real summers and winters, that thing is moving a lot anyway. You're, in essence, building for a trip across the country wherever you're going to. Yeah, but a trip across the country unassembled, to me, is different than a trip across the country assembled. Because, like, my dining room table is flat because of the trestle oh. base. So turn the so if you have, like, aprons and four legs, turn the whole table upside down. Pile all the stuff on top of the <laughs> underside of the table and just <laughs> carry it out that way. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wouldn't do, like moving parts. Like, I don't know if I would have leaves that you could take out or put in. I think you're right. Your drop leaf. Right. Because if that... Because, yeah, the more moving parts, the more things can move on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's... So that's something I do think I would avoid in terms as far as construction goes. That's a really good point. Have you ever done a table of drop leaves or anything? Yeah. Did you do the drop leaves cross grain? Along the grain. I had like a shaker table I wanted to use up against the wall as just sort of a shallower desk. So I actually had an asymmetric table. So when it was down, the tabletop was narrow and centered over the trestles. And then the back or the portion against the wall, when you pull it out, you could lift up that leaf and lock it and it became a wider table. Mm-hmm. But then it looked really stupid because it was like off-center in the face. <laughs> um, so I eventually remounted the tabletop on the base so that the the leaf could no longer drop down. <laughs> and that was my dining table for 10 years. So I, yeah. I, I should have asked, I said drop leaf. I should have asked with a, like a center leaf to, Oh, um, I did make one, not where the table itself split into halves, but just where there were rails that you could pull out on either end and drop down like an 18 inch wide leaf or 16 mm-hmm. inch wide leaf on that end. Okay. And to make it bigger. But, um, I am like, morally and philosophically opposed to tables that expand and contract now. Okay. So add that to the list of what, coffee tables. You're you're morally opposed to coffee tables? Yeah, not morally opposed. I think they're all ugly. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the thing is, like, it's like when you build your first cross-cut sled. What's the biggest piece of wood I'm ever going to cut on here? I better size my sled. And 48 then inches yeah. wide. Yeah. Same thing with a dining table. Well, that one time Thanksgiving five years ago, we had 18 people here. I need to build a dining table for 18 people. It's like, no, build it for the other 364 days of the year. Yeah. And just 
get out the folding table and stick it on the end of your table and put a tablecloth across everything and it looks like a big table <laughs> and then put your folding table away. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I got uh, nothing. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think it's time to uh, read some listener comments. Uh, this one is on YouTube on Chop Talk Live 176. And I liked it. It's from Josh Thomas. I imagine a non-woodworker watching this and wanting to smash their head through a computer screen. <laughs> what, what does being a non-woodworker have to do with it? <laughs> oh, those I think people have written in talking about their spouses listening with them and everything. Actually, my wife listens. It's like, why? Stop. All right. And then I, I've, I've really hesitated about reading this one or not. I love it. It's my next tattoo. <laughs> this one was on a different... It was, it was on a video on the website. but um, And in the video, I'm cleaning up a rusty tool in my shop. And I say, it's, I've been working on the shop for two years. And it still wasn't wired. And Right now it is, dude. Uh, let's see. Two years in the house and you still have not run a circuit out to the shop. What's the big deal? Dig a trench, set the conduit, pull the Romex into the conduit, then hook it up. I would think that not having a working home shop would be a requirement to working. I'm I'm sorry. I would think that having a working home shop would be a requirement to working at Fine Woodworking. Dozens, if not hundred or more, would like to have that job who have a working home shop and use it daily. What I love about that is in like the first three quarters, you're like, oh, this is just a really fun troll. Like someone is with you and then it just takes a left turn into dark. (laughs) (laughs) And the part that I didn't put is it started with not to be a Debbie Downer. (laughs) And it turned into you shouldn't have your job. Give it to someone else. I love it. (laughs) This is the kind of response we're looking for. This this is what makes the show. (laughs) This is what lets us rant for the whole rest of the two weeks before the next pod. (laughs) podcast that's awesome i i read that like every morning i come in i read website comments i respond as i can and you know i read every comment on the website and i read that and it just set the tone of my day the whole like every hour i would just like click on it and like start to reply and they're like no and then i decided let's reply on the podcast where he probably won't hear (laughs) well i love the spirit of this so i don't want to argue any about tone or negativity because yeah. that's all cool. However, I do want to argue with the notion that any fine working editor should have like this glorious outfitted home oh, shop come on now. because it's not the reality for the majority of our readers. I mean, yeah. a lot of people are like you. I've got a space, but I still need to do this and this, so I'm getting by with this. That's a reality, and if we're all sitting here in these these perfectly conditioned, well lit, well electronically outfitted shops. It's kind of hard to relate to someone who doesn't have that. So, and Barry, you're in a position where you came here, you relocated, you don't have a shop. And that's really important too. I mean, the notion that not everyone that comes to the magazine comes as an expert, and that's a really, really good thing. What's really important is that you come with a certain passion. Mm -hmm. And with that passion, there's a curiosity, there's wanting to get better. And then that informs the articles we make because, Barry, you'll go to an author and, and watch the way that maybe they're doing something that's new to you, but a more experienced editor may have seen that done 20 times as sort of yawning their way through it. And you're like, why do you do it that way? What is that about? And all of a sudden you're getting answers and information out of that author, which is going to benefit a huge portion of our readers um, that wouldn't be there had someone with more experience um, been there and not asked those questions. And conversely, you know, it's nice to have people on staff like John Benson, who is the reigning expert and authority on contemporary furniture design um, and knows every maker out there. That's a huge and tremendous resource for the magazine. So it's it's a big mix. And um, some of us have do have nice shops. Some of us are on our way. Some of us are dependent on the fine woodworking shop and are now incredibly frustrated to not have a shop to work with. I have a spare bedroom and a workbench. <laughs> See. Uh, so, and you a know, myriad of scrub planes. So it's all good. So it's not, I'm not taking, you know, anything you say to task. It just is a good opportunity to talk about, you know, what I think makes the staff of the magazine really, really healthy and viable and actually creates a really good product. So there you go. Bam. Dude, you got told. 
Well, is now the right time to bring up the article idea about the versatility of two scrub planes? Is that like... <laughs> as long as Garrett Hack writes it. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. On iTunes, we had a couple of five-star uh, comments. Read um, the name. Read the name. I know. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to... This one is by General Sweet Pants. <laughs> If I waited half a second, oh, I would have spit his tea out. <laughs> Woodworking meets nerdy humor. I don't know what you're talking about there. We were just talking about 20-sided dice. <laughs> Let's see. This has to be the best woodworking podcast out there. The hosts are a wealth of knowledge. Their personalities all complement each other so well, and there appears to be some real camaraderie between all of the fine woodworking staff. Keep up the great work. Not it really. doesn't seem appear to be. It appears to be. <laughs> And then the next one is from uh, Te Homaga, and I like this is based on a meme, but I can't figure out. So I'm, just, I, I I'm, I'm I looking for sure. guidance. Uh, title of the review is Pepperidge Farm Plains, and um, he says my favorite place to listen to the Pepperidge Farm guy talk about the price of Stanley Plains. I don't. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm full on a millennial. So if someone could email in. With this translation, I'd well, be really there, grateful. There was the meme of the, I feel like it was from Family Guy or something like that, about, you know, the, I, do you remember when the price, when Pepperidge Farm or whatever, I remember when something, it's, it's an old man reminiscing about the days of old and somehow tied to Pepperidge Farm. Yeah. I, I, so fill us in, please. Back in the day, a scrub claim cost a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we should, yeah. All right, I'm itching to drop a Simpsons joke, but I don't think anybody watches it. And I'm have such an internal struggle with this. I'm like, going to tie an onion to my belt, which was a style at the time. But see, it lands flat, but I had to get it out. I don't think you need to be up on, on Simpsons to find that humorous. All right, good. Thank was, you. Yeah. It was, right. But I know the quote. Whoa, Okay. <laughs> Yes, I'm not alone. Jeff's your audience right now. <laughs> right. That's, that's a little frightening. <laughs> Give me five bees for a quarter, you'd say. <laughs> and Barry's just getting warmed up. I know. I've kept the Simpsons quotes deep inside for the past like year and a half. They're kind of flowing out. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, Barry recommends The Simpsons. And shop shoes, to be honest. Shop shoes Sunday. Hashtag. Yeah. I've started working in that spare bedroom in my apartment. And I'm traipsing sawdust and wood shavings all over the place. What's the shop shoe of choice? <sighs> what I really loved, I had an old pair of chucks that I cut the back out of so I could slip them in. What? <laughs> but I also had to stitch the tongue to, like, the grommets or whatever. So there's no ties. <laughs> Oh my god! No, no, there are ties, but they were just like stayed tied. We're okay. learning so much about you. <laughs> but like, I had this pair of chucks that had like a hole almost worn in the bottom, so I cut out the back, like clogs or mules. Sure, what are they called? Yeah, Mary Janes. Yeah, because <laughs> that because you can just slip them in and off, and so you get to the shop door, slip out, come back, slip in, and there's no You're changing wow. your shoes, walking from room to room. I'm barefoot, the hundred percent of the time. You've seen my toe shoes. <laughs> Being barefoot is the way to go. So, but when I get to the shop, I need a pair of shoes. The spare bedroom. Yeah. Okay. Which. (laughs) Wait, but don't you have to walk through your shop to go to the bathroom? Mm Mm-hmm. What's that like? Shop shoes. Shop shoes off. Bathroom. (laughs) Shop shoes on. Shop shoes off. I think shower. Shop shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but so. Anyway, that I recommend shop shoes. So you're not traipsing stuff through the house. I'm pretty sure traipsing stuff through the house cost me a relationship in the past. Pretty sure it was something else. I don't have pretty good cash, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my recommendation. And don't hang out with Ben. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have shop shoes. I do. Um, I recently upgraded my shop shoes from fuzzy Crocs, which I've had for years, um, to sort of like felted wool slip-on-ish clogs with a real rubber tread sole to them. So they're indoor-outdoor slippers. They're fine. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm using now because I yeah. left my other shoes on my other shop. But yeah. All about comfort. Mm-hmm. All right. I have no shop shoes. Do you have a recommendation, though? 
I do have a recommendation. And that just means is, you're always wearing your shop shoes. Always ready to go. Yep. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, my recommendation is Chris Thiele's Thank You, New York yeah. from the record. Um, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's Check tremendous. It it's Barry and I just can't stop talking about it. I'm going to have to say Tom Waits' Swordfish Trombones, which I just downloaded because I got Apple Music, so I'm now I'm just like getting all the old stuff. And, Swimming in it. Um, so that's my uh, listening, shop listening uh, tunes of late. Nice. All right. Well, that is all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them in to shoptalk at taunton.com. If you're watching on YouTube, click that thumbs up button. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. I realized when I made that Simpsons reference to you, I'm looking almost right in the camera. (laughs) I am the camera. (laughs) Gonna tie an onion to my belt, which was a style at the time.